Hey, welcome to The Exam Room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian. As COVID-19 heats up, more doctors are finding themselves on the front lines of a global pandemic. And with that, they're facing fears and uncertainties and ethical dilemmas that they have no idea how to deal with. While we talk about protective equipment, nobody's talking about protecting the mental health of these hardworking medical professionals. So I had the chance to chat with Dr. Jesse Gold, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at Washington University. In this episode, she breaks down what health professionals are facing and offers some really prescriptive solutions on both the individual and institutional levels. We went off the rails a little bit talking about psychiatrists and social media. It was a whole lot of fun. She was a great guest. Lots of interesting stuff here, and I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Jesse Gold, welcome to the exam room. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you know, I just want to say as a side note for those who are listening, uh, normally when I tape podcasts, uh, they're, they're kind of evergreen and we don't timestamp them and we don't uh, put a date on them or anything. But uh, just for the record, we're taping this on April 5th, 2020 during the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm st- timestamping this because things are changing really quickly and the facts and opinions that we share could be really different even a week or two from now when, when people listen to this, right? Mm-hmm. It changes very fast. So, Jesse, tell us tell us what you do. You're a psychiatrist. Tell us a bit about your practice and your circumstances. Yeah, I'm I'm a psychiatrist in St. Louis. I work at Washington University. I primarily see uh, college kids and graduate students. I work at Student Health. I also uh, have an outpatient practice where I see sometimes see faculty and staff. I'm really interested in physician wellness and med student wellness, and have been for a really long time. And also teach. Very good. Give us a little context here. I guess in the face of COVID, what has happened to your practice? Have you guys converted to telehealth? Are you, are you seeing a psychiatric emergencies in person or how's that working at Wash U with psychiatry? Yeah, it's been interesting because I kind of have two different bosses and two different structures. But um, I, in the college, I'll start there right after um, spring break kind of is where a lot of this took off. So um, the, the undergrads stayed home and got a message over spring break that they couldn't come back to campus. And so they were told that they were going to stay home and do classes online, at least for April. And that for us was kind of up in the air for what we would do and who was still on campus and who we would be seeing in person. So we actually stayed seeing in-person visits for a while um, trying to see who was still around and who still needed to be seen. And we actually share a building with primary care on campus. So we're trying to see what made most sense for everyone. And now we've transitioned to doing entirely telehealth, which is still mostly phone, but our, as the rules have been evolving, um, seeing more people via video. Um, there's still a lot of bureaucratic insurance limitations to that. And with seeing college kids and having them sort of all over the United States, it's, right. there are there are a, lim- a lot of limitations to that and paperwork mm-hmm. around that. So we have been mostly just our rules right now are like, if you're in St. Louis or you're in Missouri, we'll see you via video. Right. And so we've been doing that. We haven't been doing new patients yet either, but w- that's what we've been doing in that clinic. And my other clinic has shifted to entirely phone and video as well. And that also included me getting 
a temporary license in Illinois because we see a lot of patients that Mm -hmm. are coming from Southern Illinois to see us because of proximity and they actually don't allow, um, that has also been shifting over time, but haven't allowed us to see new patients via telehealth without a license. So we're applying for temporary licenses there as well. So it's been interesting. Um, I haven't been doing a lot of in-person stuff. I did my one weekend of attending inpatient last weekend. I only have to do two a year, but I did last weekend I was on service. So that was just a fortuitous timing, I guess. Um, And so I did that and supervised and was on service for that in the psych unit. Yeah, it sounds like we're going through some of the same transition here. It's funny because on the news, we see everything about the ICUs and the ERs. And uh, there's a whole downstream effect of this on other parts of the medical profession. And we're, I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist and um, transitioning to caring for a large population of chronically ill kids via telemedicine um, has been a huge challenge and a huge transition with a, a very, very large group. And so we're going through the same thing, doing a lot of stuff by telephone, transitioning into video. Um, but it's been, it's been stressful in its own way, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's very different for me. I mean, I didn't realize how much, I mean, in a way I realized how much I went into this because I like people. I'm in a career where I talk to people all day and listen Mm -hmm. to people all day. But I think like I, I maybe took for granted how much I really liked the actual seeing people aspect. So Mm -hmm. having so much of it over the phone recently, I definitely have struggled with. Um, and it, it has been an adjustment and I'm, I'm looking forward to the telehealth part with actual video being part, being integrated more because I definitely miss being able to see people. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, psychiatry is perfectly positioned for telehealth. In fact, uh, I think psychiatry is one of the earliest fields into telehealth. I'm not mistaken. So hopefully it'll be a smooth transition for you. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think the VA has also been doing it in psychiatry for a very long time. So I think it'll be good. Um, I'm looking forward to it. So everybody's talking about protective equipment for physicians and the risk of COVID-19 to health professionals, but no one's really talking about the mental health repercussions. And so you wrote a stat news opinion piece uh, a week or so ago on your concerns. And you say, Poignantly, to an outside observer, healthcare workers look strong and resilient in the face of the unknown, but there's a downside to this. What's that downside that we're not really seeing on TV or even hearing about? The downside is we put on a brave face and like underneath the surface are really, really struggling. And I see this in my friends. I see this in my family. I see Mm -hmm. this in, you know, even in myself sometimes. I'll be honest about that. I think sometimes I'll unexpectedly feel angry or unexpectedly feel sad and not necessarily know where that's coming from and have to check in with myself about that. And I think this is a really hard time for us and it's a really hard time to be a healthcare worker. And there are a lot of new challenges and a lot of new things and a lot of new risks and not a lot of space or time or adjustment time to talk about it. So you said here that we, I think this was some Vox, you said we have anger, sadness, fear, and anxiety, immense feelings that seem to come out of nowhere like a tidal wave and scare us. We choke them down to just do our jobs because that is what doctors are supposed are supposed to do. So why are we, I guess it's just ingrained in our culture as physicians, right? 
I mean, I think so. I mean, I think we really, really put patients first, which is not bad. That's what we do. Like our job is to be there for someone else. And even as a psychiatrist, a lot of what we do is like, we don't bring ourselves into the room, right? So I might have a horrible day and I might have had a horrible year, but that doesn't matter because I need to be there for you. And if I bring my stuff in or my stuff is interfering with your stuff, it makes it a lot harder for your stuff to have space. And if I start taking up a lot of the space, then I'm not really helping you. So we, I have to, I have to not be in the room. Like it's part of, it's not therapeutic for me to be taking up this space. So we learn to take ourselves out of the equation because we want to be helpful. And I think that that is fair, but in the same respect, like right now we, even if it's not while we're doing our job, maybe it's afterwards, maybe it's with our family, maybe it's with our friends, maybe it's with a support system. Otherwise, maybe it's with the therapist or a psychiatrist. But we really do need to give ourselves the space right now to have those feelings because there are a lot of them and there's no way that we can just get by with choking them down right now. And we're isolated. There's no place to really share those feelings. Uh, We're sequestered in our houses and we're not really hanging out in the doctor's lounge or the surgeon's lounge, right? Right. Or if like you were a trainee and you usually had classes, maybe some of them are canceled or they're online. Maybe the things that were, you know, things that you were doing that you had time to do, you're not having time to do because everything's so urgent right now and everything's so intense and like Mm -hmm. you don't even have time the pace is so quick and the time between things is so quick like maybe your time for breathing was that time you had for coffee in the morning or that time you had for your granola bar and you don't even have that because everybody's sick and everybody's dying and it's just so hard so i had this interesting experience uh with a patient who died at age four with mitochondrial depletion syndrome and it just relates to this whole idea of showing ourselves and for the course of this child's illness i was kind of served as like her primary his primary care provider and was always providing answers to this family and when i went to the funeral i completely froze and i didn't know what to say to this family i'd always have answers for them for for four years during the care for this child and uh and so I wrote about it and I wrote about this feeling of freezing. I remember how the, the family reached out to me, uh, the grandparents, how they saw this side of me, this human side of me. Uh, they called me in tears and just how beautiful it was to see me sort of talking about this moment of vulnerability that I had. So I just I just thought of that and and I do suppress that all the time, but, but these times when I've let it out, it really exposes our humanity and uh, can be very powerful. Yeah, it's it's interesting how people don't expect us to be like that, even though that's part of what they like about us, you know, mm-hmm. like there is that they they were attracted to you as a physician, I'm sure in part because of that, but they didn't recognize it in the moment. And I think I had a similar experience where when I was a intern on the neuro, the neurology service, I had a patient where he was getting sicker and sicker and we didn't know what it was. And we kind of all of a sudden figured out what it was and we had to tell him. And that was a death sentence basically. And Mm -hmm. I listened to the attending tell him what it was. And I left the room and I just cried in the hallway 
And all of the nurses, on, like the whole nursing station basically left the nursing station and came up to me and were like, oh my gosh, are you okay? We've never seen a doctor cry before. <laughs> and I said, oh my, like, I, I obviously am a trainee. So my first reaction was, is this inappropriate? Should I stop? I'm right. so embarrassed. What am I doing? Like, I am so, like, I can't control this. Make it stop, Jesse. Make it stop. But in the same respect, right. at the same time, like, in parallel, I'm thinking, nobody's ever seen a doctor cry before. Right, like, right, this, right. that's bad, you know? So I think it's these expectations that that's not who we are when we obviously have that humanity. That's why we went into this. We just put on this really brave face to help because we have to. I think one of the nice things about the democratization of media, social media blogs, so on and so forth, it allows patients to see on some level uh, who we are beyond just what they see in the exam room, they can see inside the white coat. And I think that's kind of been a nice uh, derivative of us being on social media. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that scares some psychiatrists about being on social media because it's very different than uh, the like traditional psychiatrist mode of thinking, which is to be not that person, right? And to not right. be a person that a lot of people know a lot about. But I think I'm hopeful that that's like there's some pushing against that because I do think, you know, you can still choose what you say and what you don't say. And I think it does help people to know something about you. We'll get into psychiatrists and social media in just a moment, but there's, there's a thing that's been gnawing at me this week, and I was thinking about this because I, I looked at the, the Guardian, um, and apparently the NHS, in trying to find docs to kind of support the, the growing demands, they put a call out for retired NHS physicians, and in one day, they had 4,500 retired physicians and nurses step forward to volunteer. What's so interesting about this is that up until now, we'd had this huge conversation about burnout, about how no one really wanted to be part of this, yet I, I feel this tremendous esprit de corps where doctors are now, people are clapping from apartment buildings and it's almost like we're being built up. But at the same time, we're we're still feeling this burnout of being part of the experience. And so it's, I'm kind of confused by that. I mean- Absolutely. I mean, when I read that stuff, it's also so hard because they ch they retired, which means, I mean, it could be because they were over it. It could be because of age. If it's mm -hmm. because of age, now they're at higher risk, right? So they're going into right. a situation oh, yeah. where they're at higher risk of mortality because they want to help because they found purpose in medicine, but they also feel like they have to give back. But it's just so interesting because that calling feels, I mean, on the one hand, like a calling above most things, but also a calling that you have to do at the same time, which I I think is a, a moral dilemma for some people, uh -huh. too, which I'm, I'm not sure that everybody knew was something that came with being a doctor. Um, you know, like they're also taking people out of specialties that they chose to go into that are very different and putting them into high stress situations like an ICU right. when they're dermatologists. And 
you know, I mean, I think that is going to have its own sort of like psychological trauma associated with it because people don't just choose specialties because of skill sets. They choose them because of mindsets and experiences and personality types. And, you know, like I am not a person who does very well under that like life or death decision making. And I'm not a person who does very well with death, frankly. So I chose outpatient psychiatry. Like I, it wasn't just because I'm fascinated by the human experience, which I am. And it's not just because I'm fascinated with the content, which I am, but there are other reasons we pick what we do. So to be put into the situation where you have to do something else, where you not only don't have the skill set because you haven't used it in a while or never used it. Um, right. But it's a high stress situation to use it in. And it's a place where you maybe never really match to begin with, it's going to be really hard for people. So Jesse, let me pick this term that you use, psychological trauma, and uh, let's explore that a little bit. What And what are the the mental health repercussions of, of providers? I mean, we, you talked in just general terms about it, but what, what are the real repercussions here? Well, right now there are a lot of different things that are contributing, right? So I think that there are risks right now just going to work every day. They're afraid of being getting sick, bringing that home to their families. Some of them are isolating themselves so that they don't bring it home to their families. That could be indefinite because we don't know when this is ending. There's kind of an underlying grief about that. I think there's a fear of mortality and mm-hmm. an actual real realness of it because the statistics in other countries plus the statistics here would suggest that like it's a very real fear of doctors getting sick and dying of other healthcare professionals getting sick and dying and so that is a really tangible thing um we see our colleagues writing their wills and thinking about this because mm-hmm. of that um then then there's the sort of moral dilemmas of um rationing care that is likely to occur if it hasn't already, which is that we don't have enough equipment or medications to care for people in this high amount, you know, at end of life care. And we're going to have to say like this person versus this person who gets it. And that's not something we trained for or ever thought we would have to do. And that is... I mean, even just talking about it, honestly, like really hurts my soul. Um, And so I think if you think about having to do that day in and day out, like that's going to hurt us. It just can't possibly not. Um, So I think those are things that I think about as like immediate risks. But if you consider and then if you compound that on top of like we already have pre-existing high rates of burnout, high rates of suicide, high rates of depression, high rates of substance use, um, all lot untreated because we have high rates of stigma and not really wanting to get care anyway. Um, I think all of that would be compounded for high risk of additional burnout, additional depression, uh, likely PTSD. We don't have a lot of data to kind of look at and say, what would this look like? I mean, we have some from SARS and quarantine from SARS, and that data says like healthcare professionals had higher rates of um, 
PTSD mm-hmm. after after quarantine than other per, anybody else, the whole general public that was quarantined, um, which would suggest that maybe that would be the case now too. And then we have all these other things now, plus it's longer. So I would assume we're going to have a lot of trauma in general. And then long-term, I would assume all of this would just be the same thing, only longer and more drawn out. So one thing that I've noticed in this sort of ambient monitoring on Twitter is uh, a lot of discussion about alcohol, a lot of very open discussion about how much more physicians are drinking. There was a surgeon the other night, uh, took a picture of a wine glass and a very large iced tea glass filled with wine and was talking about this was his new normal. Uh, Wine.com says consumption is up 40%. And San Francisco, uh, there was a story uh, uh, last week just in describing the uptick in consumption. This is a real issue for docs, right? Alcohol use during these circumstances. Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, it's a real issue for docs anyway, let alone right now. I mean, I think what happens is alcohol is one of those things that is a coping skill that we think is an okay coping skill until it's not, right? And Mm -hmm. especially when we're in a situation where we're home and it's just there and it's so easily accessible and everyone else can just have one drink and it's, and it's, it's like socially normalized to just have one drink at the end of the day. And it's also socially normalized to have this like kind of statement that it's like an anxiety relief, right? Like, oh, right. I had a, I had a hard day. I'm just going to have a drink or, you know, like that's a statement. Like uh, it's trendy almost to say something. It's wine o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's it's happy hour. I had a I had a hard day. I just need a drink or, you know, this like it's not people don't view that as alcoholism. People view that as normal. So if you're a person who that's not normal or you're a person where right now it's really hard to have anything else that puts you out of control, right? Because our whole world is out of control right now, let alone the things that you're seeing and, and experiencing, it's going to make it harder, right? And it also doesn't help your sleep. That's the other thing. Like alcohol is not going to make your sleep better. And sleep is one of the things that you absolutely are going to need right now if you're a healthcare provider. Long-term effects, uh, I, I read about this last week, uh, pay cuts and layoffs, uh, some of the big ER groups are beginning to drop physicians just because standard, you know, strip mall ERs and whatnot just aren't having the volume. Um, and I think this is going to be sort of a long-term sequelae that we're probably going to be dealing with, I think, going forward. It's, it's pretty scary. I saw that too. I saw that sometimes uh, like some elective kind of surgical things as well, because, you know, they've had to cut down elective surgeries and they're not going to bring in as much revenue. And it's just so interesting because it just reminds people that hospitals and medicine is a business as much as it is needed, you know? And I think people forget that you're clapping for us and you're recruiting us to go to the front lines and you're desperately seeking us. But at the same time, you're cutting our wages and telling us you don't need us and then not giving us sick leave and not helping us with childcare. And we're in all of these groups too. Like we also have low wage workers and in-home workers and frontline staff that are, you know, working our desks and have to come in every day and cleaning people Mm -hmm. have to come in every day. And all of these people who need support and need a lot of this, um, you know, much more than they're getting. 
I would not be surprised if we see the evolution of some new practice models emerging even beyond telehealth. I think uh, folks are going to get pretty creative as uh, as the as things start to fall. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, how that plays out. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about psychiatrists and social media, Jesse. When I look and follow on Twitter, it's probably fewer psychiatrists that I see in the tweet stream than ER doctors or cardiologists. Tell us a little bit about how psychiatry is different or how social media is different as a psychiatrist and what are the things that we consider and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I'm a younger psychiatrist, so I, I have like a perspective that might not be the same perspective as everyone's, but this is my opinion. Um, I think that the way that psychiatry used to look at things like from the psychoanalytic perspective of, let's say, Freud, um, was that we are a blank slate and as such, we don't really have a lot that we say about ourselves. We do not have an opinion about a lot of things. We do not contribute a voice in a lot of ways. And we're sort of like a big neutral force. And that means that social media is particularly hard because you're not a neutral force on social media. Like even if mm-hmm. you're ret- like retweeting things, like nobody's going to follow you if all you do is retweet. Like you usually need to say something about it or have an opinion or something. Like you have to have a s- personality of sorts to be right. someone that somebody wants to listen to or follow. So I think that makes it hard because it goes against that old school kind of model of like, I do not contribute to the conversation in this way. I right. need to be someone that every single person can see and not feel like I'm like alienating anybody. And so I think for me as a psychiatrist, one of the things that I'm really mindful of is trying not to tweet anything that I wouldn't want my patients to know that I said. So I think every, I think every doctor thinks like that, but I think that we do, especially, I think that, um, I try not to get too political because I think that I have to see everybody and I don't want people to feel like they can't see me or disclose to me or trust me because of something I said. So if they want to tell me something about you know, their opinions would differ from mine politically or differ from mine advocacy wise. I don't want them to feel like they couldn't be safe in my room to tell me that because Mm -hmm. of something I said on social. So I try really hard to view it through that lens as best I can. Like, obviously there are things that I will still say because to me, like I'm advocating for my patients above all things. And, and I think sometimes that can maybe feel like it can be a little political at times, but I think that that's just because of things that have become political that maybe to me aren't. Um, And I think I look at things through that lens as best as I can. um, And I really try to do that. Um, But I think there are less psychiatrists because of that for fear of really, you know, getting in trouble or like, alienating people or saying too much or I think there's Mm -hmm. probably also some kind of fear of like patients following you and like um, right you know that sort of thing does it differ I mean if you do if you have a psychiatry practice dealing with personality disorders or uh, I don't know if you're dealing with uh, forensics or in the prison system I mean I hear these stories of psychiatrists really staying kind of staying away from having a public voice based upon their practice. Have you heard that? 
I have too. Yeah, I, I have. I think it depends on you and your comfort and how comfortable you are and like what's public facing mm-hmm. and what's not um, for sure. And I mean, I think like some people, you know, one of the things that's hard about Twitter versus something else would be is like you can't not accept someone as your friend unless you have a private Twitter, right? So mm-hmm. if you're on Facebook and you just have like a work Facebook, if your patient requests you as a friend, you could not accept them as a friend and then that still allows that barrier. But if your patient was to follow you on Twitter, they just follow you. So that doesn't allow you control over the boundaries of your relationship, which I think people don't like. I mean, it's been very, very interesting. You know, I started on Twitter in 2008 and it's been fascinating to watch thousands of physicians just appear on on Twitter and it's interesting to see what their motivations are. And I think it's, I think as a psychiatrist, you probably can speak to this. It's interesting to look at why people are there and I think everyone has different motivations for being there. All doctors talk about wanting to give to, you know, contribute to the greater good, but I think there are a lot of hidden agendas. People like to be heard. People want their agendas heard. And people posture differently on social media. And they they look differently than they do in real life. And so it's been very, very interesting to watch. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, social media has been very amazing at mentorship, at connecting me to people I would have never met before, at helping me to become a better writer and connecting me to people that do things that I do that like I haven't found people that do in in other areas of my life. And I think right. that's been like amazing for me. But I will say like, you will notice like the more followers you get, the more people who ask you to kind of help them in ways that feel less uh, genuine. Um, and that's always a little bit interesting because I don't know that people do that in medicine usually, like, you know, ask you to- People read reaching out and like- yeah. Asking you to read things or help, yeah, help them with and a like, push, a, push a cause maybe. Yeah, in ways that feel less like mentorship and more like self-promotion. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, Jesse, share with me some of the potential solutions that we could use to address some of the psychological trauma that we describe here. Yeah. So, at the individual level, like at what's going on with you, the stuff, the first thing you need to do is sort of be nice to yourself. So what does that mean? That's easier said than done. So that means that you need to have compassion for the fact that you're going to have feelings, you're going to cry, you're going to be angry, you're going to be anxious, and you need to give yourself space for that. That doesn't need to be all the time. It doesn't need to be at work if you don't want it to be, but it needs to be with someone if you want it to be. It needs to be allowed to happen. Um, And you need to not beat yourself up about it. And then after you give yourself space to have feelings, you can think about how to cope with it. I think some of us already have coping skills. Like maybe we already went to therapy. Maybe we've already thought about the stuff we like to do. So the easiest thing to do is think about what things work for you. If you don't know that because you don't have those skills, um, some things that have worked for other people include like mindfulness works. Mindfulness really is just sort of taking you out of all of those things in your head that are really stressing you out and bringing you into the present. So it's a it's something that sometimes stresses people out to even think about doing because it, it you have to flex it. It's a muscle. But one way to do that is to download like something like the Headspace app, which is free for healthcare providers right now. 
with your NPI um, and just like listen to it before bed or listen to it after work and just start trying to do a meditation and see if that helps. If you don't like that, sometimes you can just the Calm app has like bedtime stories, which also sounds a little silly, but honestly, like just calms you before bed and can be nice. Um, sometimes people also like when they get worked up in the moment where they're like physically feeling anxious, can just name things around their room to sort of bring themselves back into the moment. So like the mm-hmm. colors that they see, the th- objects that they see. Um, things that they like. So if someone really likes cars, they can just like name a bunch of cars. If they really like a certain actor or movies or something, they can name that. That can help. Sometimes journaling can help. So you can like set a timer, write down your thoughts for like 20 minutes and then just stop. That can help. Sometimes things like exercise can help. I would say sleeping, eating, showering, things that you shouldn't stop doing um, because all of that is really important. Those are like the individual level things And then like at an organizational level, um, I think we need to start investing in mental health and investing in mental health of healthcare providers now. So a lot of what places are doing includes um, involving the psychiatry and mental health staff in planning for taking care of our own now. So a lot of places are starting things like a hotline for healthcare providers um, so you can call to get kind of grief support in the moment now. Uh, A lot of places are opening up extra in-person, which is really virtual appointments um, with either a psychiatrist or a therapist or social worker um, to just get support and brief support, but now and be able to get uh, meds if you need it. A lot of places are doing kind of virtual drop-in support groups or skill groups to do like anxiety coping or stress coping. That's been looks like that's been helpful for people. Um, Increasing access to spiritual support has also been helpful. But I do think that these things that we would be putting in place should not be things that you're just putting in place for crisis interventions. They should all Mm -hmm. be put in place for long term. We have like a burnout issue. We have a suicide issue anyway. So I don't think we should just say, we did it. Look, we did it for now. Bye. We should do it and be like, we obviously needed it and invest in it. And this should also, you know, monetary investment from hospitals and institutions, but also the government is probably needed to be able to manage this. Yeah, I think this is tug of war between that I see between personal accountability versus operational accountability. And I think that we have to look after ourselves initially. I mean, this goes back to burnout and everything and and mindfulness. And um, I think it's institutionally, we have to do our part to support, but Ultimately, at the end of the day, we have to kind of look after ourselves, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's why if you're already seeing a provider, you obviously need to keep going. Or if you're on meds, you need to keep going and you need to take accountability. But when you're feeling really bad, it's hard to take accountability for yourself. And if you don't have access and there aren't places in place to help you, how are you supposed to take accountability? So we do need to do these things and make these like thoughtful investments in our people, because if they don't know where to get help, how are they supposed to get it? So I set a record for myself in a march with the number of uh, miles walked as part of my exercise. So that was sort of my outlet that I was doing to kind of, yeah, to kind of kind of reconnect, you know. Jesse, how can people find you? Website, I know you're very present on Twitter. Do you, what's your map look like? Do you have any properties online that you maintain that you want to share? 
Sure. The easiest place to find me is Twitter, which is at Dr. Jessie Gold. Jessie spelled J-E-S-S-I. I also have an Instagram of the same name. Um, I also have a, my website's just uh, drjessiegold.com, and that's where you can find like all my writing and anywhere that I've been like quoted if you want to see any of those places. And you can also contact me through there if you want to say hi. That's great. Uh, Jesse, it's been wonderful. Thank you for your thought-provoking piece in Stat News and your equally interesting insights here in the exam room. Your uh, advocacy for mental health uh, of health professionals during this crisis deserves a lot more than 30 minutes. So I hope folks here listening to this will reach out to Dr. Gold and uh, get her amazing insights on this uh, tumultuous time we're in. Uh, if you want to hear more about upcoming episodes, you can go to 33charts.com and subscribe to the uh, newsletter there, and uh, we'll keep you up to date. Dr. Gold, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, and thanks, everyone, for what you're doing. It means a lot to me, and I'm grateful to be in the same sentence as all of you. Take care. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.